Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You are listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. Hi there, and welcome to Season 13, Episode 542. And we're your hosts. I'm David Alt, and he's Jack Ward. Hi there. And we have a very tight episode today with back-to-back episodes of Matthew McLean's amazing Hostile Worlds. So without further ado, it all begins right here on the Sonic Society. Hello and welcome to Hostile Worlds, the podcast that takes you to places you'd die to see and places you'd die if you saw You're aboard a ship called the Tardigrade. It's an all-purpose vehicle that can fly, float, dive and dig through any environment in the universe, no matter how hot or cold it might be. We're on our way to Titan, the biggest moon of Saturn, and the only cosmic body other than Earth that we know for certain has actual lakes and seas on its surface. I'm your host, Matthew McLean, and if you haven't heard episode 1 yet, I'd advise you to go and check that out first. We'll wait right here for you until you catch up. If you've already heard episode 1 though, you'll hopefully remember our example of the peppercorn and the basketball. The basketball represented the size of the sun, whilst the peppercorn was a scale comparison of Earth. The distance between the two was six full car lengths, parked nose to tail along the side of the street we were standing in. So Titan is even smaller than Earth, about half the size in fact. That means we'll have to split our peppercorn in half, and we'll need to take it further away from the sun too. A lot further. Whilst Earth is about 93 million miles away from the sun, Titan is a massive 886 million miles away from it. That's nearly 10 times the distance. So, instead of six parked cars between the two, we're now looking at a distance of 57 car lengths. And, as you can imagine, being that far away from the sun means that Titan is cold. Very cold. That's a lovely coat. Thanks, Sarah. I think it'll come in handy. Um, not real fur, I hope. Certainly not. Huh, <laughs> yes. What's that you're reading, anyway? This? Oh, it's called Lando Lakes Secrets from Titan Seas, written by a resident expert for this voyage, Alex Hayes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remind me, who is this Alex then? He's an assistant professor at Cornell University in the astronomy department. 
He specialises in solar system exploration and he's part of the Cassini mission to Saturn research team. Ah, yes, so he knows what he's talking about then, hmm? Very much so. Have a wee read of this. It's a section he's written about visualising what it would be like to actually stand on the surface of time. (coughs) Imagine yourself standing at the shoreline of a picturesque freshwater lake surrounded by soft grass and leafy trees. Perhaps you're enjoying a peaceful lakefront vacation. In the calm water, you see the mirror-like reflection of a cloudy sky just before it begins to rain. Now, let the surrounding vegetation disappear, leaving behind a landscape you might more reasonably expect to see in the rocky deserts of the southwestern United States. The temperature is dropping too, all the way down to a bone-chilling minus 295 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about minus 180 degrees Celsius or 92 kelvins. The air around you feels thicker, although you yourself feel seven times lighter courtesy of reduced gravity. As the clouds pass overhead, you notice that the lake's surface now reflects a hazy orange sky with the brightness of early twilight. After the clouds have moved on, you finally begin to feel rain hitting your hands. However, The rain falls much slower than normal, and the drops are bigger, with large splashes following each impact. The ground you stand on is a loose, sandy mixture of broken-up water ice and organic material, like plastic shavings or styrofoam beads. On closer inspection, the lake doesn't hold water, but a liquid not unlike natural gas. And you'd be better holding your breath because the surrounding air has no oxygen. If you can picture all of this, welcome to the surface of Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Well, that um, that certainly sets the scene, doesn't it? <laughs> I feel cold already. <laughs> That's why I've got the fur coat on. The fake fur coat. As long as it does the job. Huh. So, are you going to ask Alex lots of questions about Titan before we get there? Already did. I spoke to him on our radio thing. Listen, we really do need a better name for that, don't we? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Any suggestions? We just, um, radio? Mm, needs to sound more high-tech. Uh, uh, comms interface, maybe? That'll do. Yeah. Happy to be of service. What was I saying again? Uh, well, you mentioned something called the Cassini mission. Oh, yeah. Well, that's actually a really good place to start this episode. Here, let me put my presenter's hat on for this. Oh, that's an ace hat. <laughs> it really goes well with the uh, faux fur coat thing. You sure? I don't look a bit weird, do I? There's a bit. But, um, as you said, uh, it's all audio, eh? Right? You know? Yep, I suppose. So, historically, we didn't know very much about the surface of Titan. Because it's surrounded by this thick atmosphere of orange clouds, scientists and astronomers were never able to get a proper look at it from afar. It was just floating there, 
eluding us like some big mysterious rusty snooker ball. But in October 1997, the unmanned Cassini-Huygens spacecraft was launched, and it was heading for the outer solar system to visit the neighbourhood of Saturn and Titan. The spacecraft had a long to-do list of missions and tasks to be carried out over the next 20 years. The mission would finally come to an end by taking a dive into Saturn's atmosphere in September 2017. But it was back in July 2004 that Cassini originally entered the orbit of Saturn and got to work in the region. A few months later, in December, the Huygens part of the ship, which was actually an atmospheric probe built by the European Space Agency, detached itself from the main body of the spacecraft. The Huygens probe began its descent towards Titan, where it would penetrate the haze layer and land on its surface. Finally, about 350 years after Titan's discovery, mankind was about to get a look at exactly what lay underneath those mysterious clouds. I remember this well as a young sci-fi enthusiast. I'd been obsessing over some really far-fetched artist's impersonations of what it might look like on the surface of Titan. There was one that still sticks in my mind. It depicted towering Lovecraftian monsters fighting dinosaur-style creatures as a giant volcano erupted behind them. I mean, okay, it probably wasn't endorsed by anyone with a scientific background, but still, I was just thinking, what are they going to find out there? Those running the mission had probably ruled out the Huygens probe getting a ringside seat to Cthulhu wrestling with a stegosaurus. But one thing they did have no idea about was what the probe was actually going to land on when it touched down on Titan. And that was something I definitely wanted to ask Alex Hayes about. Here's a clip from a recent conversation over the radio th- uh, comms interface. Ooh, another cassette type. Mm-hmm. So the story of the Huygens probe descent into Titan has multiple elements that are really fascinating. The first one is the probe itself. So Titan is the second largest moon in the solar system, the only moon with a substantial atmosphere. And because of that atmosphere, we couldn't see down to the surface. But we knew Titan was interesting, first, because it has an atmosphere, and second, because methane is in that atmosphere, and methane is actually destroyed in the upper atmosphere of Titan. And in about 10 to 100 million years, all of the methane that's in Titan's atmosphere would be destroyed by high-energy particles from the sun, which means there has to be a source. And in the process of destroying that methane, which is a a chemical process known as photolysis, you generate higher-order organics. The one that you produce the most of is ethane, and it turns out at Titan's surface, ethane is a liquid. And so, because we couldn't see down to the surface, and we knew that over billions of years, if this atmosphere was present, First of all, you have to replenish that methane that's depleted every 10 to 100 million years from something. And you have to then store the products of destroying that methane, the higher order organics that are formed, the the predominant one being ethane, which is a liquid. And so there was a possibility that Titan was actually a global ethane ocean. And so Titan could have been an ocean world. And this was the picture we had of Titan when Cassini was launched. And the Huygens probe, which was uh, created by the European Space Agency as their contribution to the mission, was made to either land on a solid surface or to float on a hydrocarbon sea because they didn't know what Titan's surface was made of. 
A Global Ocean World, just like that famous Kevin Costner film. Oh, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That's the one. Can you imagine the excitement here, though? I know I've just banged on about how far away Titan is, but in the grand scheme of things, it's right here in our backyard, in our own solar system. And, and a mere 13 years ago, we didn't know what it was really like underneath those thick cloud layers, eh? And people had been working on the Cassini project since the early 80s. Think how they must have felt as the Huygens probe entered Titan's atmosphere and began to descend. It was pure exploration, pure discovery. We didn't had no idea what it was going to find. Was it going to land on a solid surface or was it going to land in a large moon-wide sea of ethane and methane, and the probe was made to either float in the methane ethane sea or land on a solid surface. And as it broke through the haze layers that are generated by breaking methane up in the upper atmosphere, what it discovered and found was a landscape very similar to Earth. So, hang on, just just to make sure I'm following this. So Cassini is the spacecraft itself, mm-hmm. and the Huygens probe pretty much hitched a lift up there and jumped out when they flew past Titan. That's about the size of it, yeah. But it didn't end up landing in a, in a big ocean of liquid natural gas in the end. It didn't, no. In fact, the Huygens probe didn't actually confirm the existence of these at all. It wasn't until early 2007 that scientists finally announced definite evidence of lakes filled with methane because of the images they were getting back from repeated Cassini flybys. So, back in 2005, what were the Huygens probe's first views of Titan as it made its way down under the clouds? Well, Alex told me that the landscape itself was a mixture of small hills and rocky flat plains. So, just to set the scene in your mind, it was immediately noticeable that the hills were covered with carved channels which looked like they'd been formed by flowing liquids, in other words, by rain. Off in the distance there were these large black streaks running over the landscape. Those turned out to be hydrocarbon dunes filled with organic sediments. The probe itself landed on a flat plain at the edge of one of the hill slopes. The ground was covered with fist-sized cobbles, which scientists suspect are made of water ice, although they can't be absolutely certain about that. Another thing they can't be certain about is how these cobbles came to be rounded. Maybe that happened by being swept along a stream bed, or maybe it was the weather conditions on the surface that shaped them. The one thing we can be certain about though, after seeing these images sent back to us from the Huygens probe, is that Titan, with its channels, dunes and plains, looks very similar to many of the desert regions we'd find back on Earth. Huygens was able to continue sending data for about an hour and a half, after which the rest of the images we'd go on to receive from Titan would be courtesy of Cassini, flying by far overhead, scanning down with its radar vision. We know now for sure that there's much more to Titan than what those initial images showed us. And now that the tardigrades making that same journey down onto the surface that Huygens did back in 2005, it'll soon be time for us to get out there and explore for ourselves. Oh, exciting! Right, I better let you go and land the thing then, Sarah. Otherwise it's going to be a short-lived podcast series. (laughs) Yes, on it. (laughs) Um... 
Are you, are you coming to watch? Or? No, actually, I'll uh, be in the bar. There's a bar on the ship? There is now. official sounding astronaut jargon but we're here and uh, I guess I should say a welcome to a titan brilliant work Sarah I barely spilled a drop there we'll get together in the briefing room in five minutes okay got it see you there so here we are on titan Last time I set an audio drama here, it didn't really end well for the characters. Fortunately for you guys, we're trying to stick closer to facts than we are to fiction. Hooray for facts! Colin, what was that famous Marilyn Monroe quote again? Um, oh, the first casualty of war is always the truth. That's the one. But that, unfortunately, means that those fake fur coats are brought for us aren't really fit for purpose. Oh. Something wrong, Sarah? Well, it's just that... I put all these little badges on mine. That's okay. You could still wear it inside the ship. But when you head outside, you're going to need something a little more sophisticated. Oh, wow. So, these are exactly the type of spacesuits needed to walk on the surface of Titan. Does anything immediately jump out about them? Yeah, they're a lot more streamlined than the big puffy suits that astronauts used to wear. Oh, it's like a sort of sci-fi scuba diver outfit. Exactly. And that isn't just a fashion statement. Although, I did take a lot of mirror selfies earlier when I was trying mines on. These suits aren't actually pressurised because the surface pressure out there is a wee bit higher than what we're used to back on Earth. It's worth pointing out, though, that although the surface pressure on Titan's higher, the gravity's a lot lower, so we might not look like the same astronauts who walked on the moon, but we'll definitely bounce around and move a lot like them when we're out there. So, your suit really has two main jobs. The first is to stop you freezing to death, because, as we've already established, it's really cold out there. Temperatures average minus 295 degrees Fahrenheit, which is minus 180 degrees Celsius. That makes Antarctica sound like the Caribbean, huh? The second job of your suit is to keep you breathing, because there's no oxygen out there. Not only that, but back in 2012, Cassini actually detected what appeared to be a massive cloud of cyanide gas floating down at the South Pole. Crikey. Yeah, you probably wouldn't take a lung full of that, would you? 
Are you sure these suits will work? Have I ever let you down before? Well, there was that time when Okay, wanted... so now that we know we're going to be safe out there, let's take a look at some of the places of interest on Titan. This is a map pieced together over the years from satellite images taken by our pal Cassini. So we've talked about how Titan's the only cosmic body aside from Earth itself that we know for sure holds areas of surface liquid. Did either of you notice anything interesting about where these seas and lakes are located? It looks like most of them are gathered around the North Pole. Well spotted. And although there's a handful down in the South Pole, it's the North Pole that definitely looks like a better place to visit for this sort of thing. Up there you've got Kraken Mare and Legia Mare, the two biggest seas on Titan. There's one lake in the south that caught my eye, actually. Ah, I see you're browsing through a popular online encyclopedia website. I am, yeah, but it's just because I recognise the name of this one here, Shoneskeg Lacus. You know, it's named after Loch Shoneskeg in the northwest of Scotland. I didn't know that, but it's good to hear that we've taken a small step towards global domination. Oh, some of these other places might interest you guys. So there's the uh, the Aztlan Darklands, the, the Doomon's Mountains. What makes you say that? Well, it all sounds a bit like those places from that tabletop war game you were both playing earlier. Hmm? I vehemently deny those charges. Me too. No idea what you're talking about. Well, fair enough. <laughs> a nice paint job on that Orc Army, though, Colin. Hmm? Anyway, I've been on that popular online encyclopedia website too, and apparently all the mountain ranges on Titan are named after locations in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, well, my favourite is um, Gandalf Corlews, which um, pretty much means the Gandalf Hills. Aye. Well, on that note, is anyone a fan of Frank Herbert's Dune series? Yeah, I've dabbled with it. There's a place on Titan called Sycon Labyrinthus, named after Sycon Labyrinth. Does that mean there's an actual labyrinth on Titan? I wonder if we'll find David Bowie dancing around in a pair of tights. Apparently a labyrinthus is a complex of intersecting valleys or ridges. And for other Dune references, you've got Arrakis Planitia and Caladan Planitia. Who actually gets to choose these names? Funnily enough, I asked Alex the same question. He said that anyone can name a feature on Titan or anywhere else in the universe as long as there's a good scientific reason for it. Like if you're studying a type of feature and it's really important to have a named example of that kind of thing. Apparently you just submit it to the International Astronomical Union which has a committee that confirms names that were proposed to it. There's a list of guidelines for different kinds of features. For example, the lakes and seas of Titan, they've got to be named after Earth lakes of similar size and shape. Alex said that he actually went ahead and did this himself. He named Cayuga Lacus, which is a lake in the North Polar region. It's got a similar size and shape to Lake Cayuga beside Cornell University, where he works. So. Really, if you match what the IEU says and you're naming a place that hasn't been named yet, then you can go for it. Seemingly, there's still plenty of lakes out there that haven't been named yet. <sighs> Lake Sarah. Sarah Lakers. Lakers. It needs to be twinned with a similar feature on Earth, remember? <clears throat> Lakers Sarah Garden Pondus. River Teus Lakers? 
Oh, I don't actually have a garden pond, does that matter? Well, I'm sure you'll both come up with a few ideas, but there'll be plenty of time for that when we're having a beer later on. For now, though, who wants to get out there and do some extraterrestrial exploration? Yes! Thought you'd never ask. So, between you and me, I didn't really fancy going out there myself. That's why I'm staying here in the warm ship with a nice cup of tea. Besides, I need to orchestrate the podcast and pull everything together. That's why I delegated the task of exploration to Sarah and Colin. Don't worry though, you won't miss any of the action. We'll be in constant communication with the crew via the ship's comms interface whilst they're out there. And as well as those specialised suits keeping them from freezing or suffocating to death, we also kitted them out with some audio equipment. A mic and earpiece inside the helmet so we can all talk to each other, and a number of small mics on the outside of the suit to record the ambient sounds of Titan itself. And without digressing too much, that's thrown up an interesting little piece of extra information for us too. Did you know that the way sound works on places other than Earth can vary wildly because of differences in temperature? Here's another clip from my chat with Alex Hayes. Sounds on Titan would sound fundamentally alien. The sound speed is proportional to the square root of temperature, so if you significantly decrease the temperature, the speed of sound goes down. The thicker atmosphere might actually make your vocal cords, for example, uh, vibrate a little bit slower. And so on Titan, Sounds would be a little bit more bassy and a little bit uh, drawn out and slower, a little bit lower pitch than we see here on Earth. So, if I was able to go out there without my suit on and start talking to you, I'd probably sound like Barry White after a 14-hour smoking session in Amsterdam. Oh, yeah. Of course, our human ears are used to sound performing in the same way as it does back on Earth. That's why we'll use a wee bit of audio wizardry to bring the speed and pitch back up to a normal level before you hear it. But if you really do want that completely genuine Titan soundscape experience, just stick your podcast app on half speed for the remainder of the episode. Anyway. Let's get it on. Right, enough of that. You've come here to find out about the mysteries of the universe, not to listen to me trying to sound like a seductive American soul singer. So where are our crew members off to? Well, I decided to send Colin up to the North Polar Region, a place that's often referred to in astronomical circles as the Land O' Lakes. As for Sarah, I wanted her to head out through some of Titan's superbly named regions such as Shangri-La and the Aslan Darklands to get a look at the Doom Mons mountain range. Excited? Me too. But let's give them a wee chance to make their way out there. It's actually quite a long walk for both of them. We'll catch up again in episode 3 and find out what they've seen and what they've learned so far. And not that I'm psychic or anything, but some of that might include things like the mysteries of Titan's hydrocarbon dunes and why there's something a bit alien about them. Does electric snow fall on Titan? In fact, what exactly is electric snow? 
And while we're at it, what are Titan's magic islands and what's so magic about them? We'll be talking about cryovolcanoes too. And then there's the question of life on Titan. Could it potentially exist here? So does that whet your appetite? Of course it does. You want to pass all this knowledge off as your own when you're down the pub on Friday. But that's fine by me. We've all done it. Just make sure and fire us a wee five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and we'll call it evens. And once you've done that, we'll see you right back here on the surface of Titan for episode three. starting to think you'd forgotten about me. <laughs> no, not at all. I was just outside trying to get a look under the ship. I swear, I think we've actually landed on top of something. We landed on something? <laughs> yeah, like like what? Don't know, but there's this crumpled looking bit of metal we're writing on it and it honestly doesn't look like part of the ship. I can't really make out what it says, but it's something like... Hoi gen... Hoi generator. Yes, the, the hoi generator. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, definitely. Definitely part of the ship. The hoi generator? I don't remember seeing that in the blueprint. What does that even do? Yeah, it's it, it's complicated. No, um, you, you, oh, you wouldn't understand. You know, I... I yeah. No? Okay, fair enough. I'll take your word for it. Good. Good, 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 because my word is true and honest. Hey, okay. Anyway, on with the show. On with the show. Yes. This is Hostile Worlds, a series created and presented by thepodcasthost.com and a journey to some of the most fascinating yet deadly places in the universe. In short, this is the show that takes you to places you'd die to see and places you'd die if you saw. I'm still not 100% won over by that tagline, by the way. But who cares about that? We're on Saturn's biggest moon, Titan, in the outer solar system. My name's Matthew McLean, and I'm your captain and guide on this historic journey. In this episode, we want to take a not-quite-literal dive into the only-known surface-lying bodies of liquid in the universe other than our own back on Earth. So what does that even mean? Well, on Earth, we've got oceans, rivers, lakes, lochs, ponds, puddles. The only other place we know for certain that has similar features is right here on Titan. Except, rather than being liquid water, these are liquid natural gases. Liquid natural gases that exist in that form because we're so far away from the sun that it's absolutely freezing out there. I say out there because I'm sitting in the warmth of our ship, the Tardigrade, and I've sent my crew members Sarah and Colin out there to do the exploring, whilst I keep in touch via the comms interface. I also drink tea. But T's and C's aren't the only things mentioned in this episode. There's loads more aside from that. 
We're going to take a look at the mystery of Titan's alien dunes. We'll find out the meaning behind the term electric snow. We'll speculate on the potential cause of Titan's mythical magic islands. We'll talk about cryovolcanism and why we think cryovolcanoes exist on Titan. And we'll pose the question of life way out here in the outer solar system. Does anything live here now? Has anything ever lived here at all? But, for now, let's get back to Sarah. How are you getting on out there? Ah, oh good. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm currently in this um, huge dark region called Shangri-La, just south of the equator. Yes, it's like a, a big, massive black desert. It's huge. Shangri-La is an interesting name. Where did they get that one? Apparently it's a, a mythical valley in Tibet. Well, I suppose that's quite fitting, given that you're off to see some mountains. But this big black desert, what's that like? Well, I'm walking over these huge dunes and it's um, well, it, it, it's sticky. I think that's the, the best way to describe it. These little granules, teeny tiny, they're all clinging to my legs and feet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I hope you, uh, hope you brought a doormat with us, because... <laughs> Eh, uh, I don't know. I'll need to go and check. Well, I do that though, actually. You've given us a good segue there. Here's a clip from my chat with Alex Hayes about the ground on Titan. We still can't tell you exactly what the surface of Titan is made of. I can tell you it's a broken up combination of water, ice, and organics. Titan is just as complex as Earth, and we see varied geologic formations that tell us that the ground varies. If you were walking up a slope of one of Titan's hydrocarbon dunes, it would be very similar to walking up a slope of a big sand dune uh, here in, in the Sahara or in Namibia. We've got a doormat. Hooray! <laughs> Never mind that. Tell me more about these huge dunes. How huge do you reckon they are? Hmm. Well, I'd say roughly about um, 100 metres high. That'll be a wee workout for the legs then. Well, on Earth, yeah, yeah, but at this gravity, getting up there is a no problem at all, man. <laughs> yeah, it's quite fun, in fact. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing a bit more research about the place too, and you know, I swear I get a better internet connection here than I do in my own kitchen. Mental. Back to the popular online encyclopedia, was it? No. No, some more scientific sources I'll think you'll find, actually. Hmm, yeah, I'll send you the links to add to the show notes if you want, but uh, I-, I take it you want to hear the gist of it? That'd be great, aye. Well, at first I-, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but there was something really strange about this place, something mm, alien. Sounds ominous. Don't worry, I'm not being stalked by literal aliens, which is a relief, actually. As I just found this scary picture online with Cthulhu fighting with a dinosaur on Titan. Yeah. The weird thing, though, is the dunes themselves. Go on. Well, it's hard to tell in this gravity and with my suit on, but they seem to be pointing the opposite way from the prevailing westerly wind. You've been on the beach when it's windy, right? I'm Scottish. I've never been on the beach when it's not windy. 
Right, well, you, you'll know what I mean with the way these patterns and the sand appear then, yeah? So if, if you look closely on the surface of the beach, the sand collects into rows, yeah? And on each row, the sand creates a barrier. It, it blows up to a point and then falls away on the other side, yeah? I think I know what you mean, yeah. Well, imagine the wind was blowing in the opposite direction. It would look wrong having the smooth, weather-beaten side facing away from the wind, wouldn't it? It would. So, that's kind of what it feels like to me out here. You know, the dunes, they, they look like they point in the wrong direction. Like, the winds move one way and the dunes move the other way. That's interesting. And you said you've looked into it. Have and it's still unlikely that the laws of physics have been completely redefined here. Yeah? I mean, these dunes were probably shaped by strong easterly winds during storms and, and periods of, of seasonal change here. But if winds generally blow west, why doesn't that reshape them? Exactly. Yes. Now, one of the most recent theories is actually, are you ready? <laughs> Electric sand. Or, more exciting, electric snow. Electric snow? Yes, because all the liquid here is hydrocarbon gases and dissolved nitrogen as opposed to water. Mm -hmm. So that means the atmosphere is what humans might think of as bone dry. So basically all these little plasticky granules might potentially be charged by Titan's dry, low-gravity atmosphere. Now this means they'd clump together with static electricity. So <laughs> winds can shake dunes on Titan, providing they're strong enough. But the prevailing winds aren't. Yeah, they aren't very strong, no. No, usually under five kilometres an hour, which is the average walking pace of an adult on Earth. Unless you forgot your shopping. Which means sticky electric sand. Yes, yes. I, I love, love, love this quote I found. It's by Joe Dufek. He's um, a professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech. He said... Um, Imagine opening a box from Amazon on a cold day and seeing it's filled with those annoying plastic packing peanuts. <laughs> Imagine your cat getting in the box and the peanuts sticking all over it. That's kind of what's happening with hydrocarbon sands on Titan. This force we don't normally think about on Earth is likely having a big impact on the landscape there in a way that isn't very intuitive. It always comes back to cats, doesn't it? So, I can understand the electric sand thing, but you also said electric snow. Yes, yes, these sand grains are apparently similar to particles found in Titan's hazy atmosphere, except obviously those are much smaller, but if charged dune and dust particles are picked up from the ground and, and moved around in the air, they could cling up in the atmosphere and eventually fall back down again. Now, this theory was what led Yanni Rudabau at Brigham Young University in Utah to coin the phrase electric snow. Well, there you go. Every day's a school day. Even out here on Titan, where there's no schools. Also, you, you mentioned Titan's hazy atmosphere. What's your visibility like? Visibility? Um, yeah, I can see everything around me clearly enough, but... Um... Not too far into the distance, really. 
That hazy orange sky is caused by scattering and absorption through the haze layers in the upper atmosphere. And the visibility, well, that same haze layer uh, and, the, and the amount of organic particles that are falling down through the atmosphere, they're going to make the visibility a little bit lower than you might see on Earth. But the difference really is that on Earth, visibility varies greatly. On, on a clear day, you could see off to the horizon, or on a bad day in, in somewhere like LA or Beijing, you, you can barely see over to the next building. And so the difference on Titan is that the visibility would be fairly uniform across the, the surface of the body, and uh, a little bit less than a clear day here on Earth, but the visibility would not vary, and that's the big difference, is that the visibility would be pretty much consistent and constant no matter where you were. So things aren't clearing up anytime soon. I think that's the conclusion there. No, no, I'm afraid I don't have much more to report at this moment in time, although during my research I also found this lovely little poem by Mike Malaska. He's a scientist in the planetary ISIS group at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It goes... Methane sky, ethane drizzle, surface made of organic shizzle, dunes of plastic, it's fantastic, let's get sticky and electrostatic. Electric snow, cats and poetry. Three things I absolutely didn't expect to be talking about on this podcast. Thanks for the update though, some really thought-provoking stuff there. At any time, you're welcome. Right, tell you what, I'll go and see how Colin's getting on up north. Then I'll catch up with you when you get to the Doommons Mountains, okay? Well, sounds good. I'll, uh, I'll just put my music back on then. But yeah, it's, it's really weird. The Bee Gees sound a bit off-key on this album. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure they had much higher voices than that. It's weird. You can tell. Colin. Two secs, just getting a photo of Saturn. This will get me a few likes on Instagram. Alright, can you actually see it in the sky then? Yeah, I can kind of make it out through the haze. Apparently Saturn and Titan are about three times further apart than our moon and the Earth is, but then Saturn's more than 30 times bigger than our moon, so it looks pretty awesome, as you'd imagine. I'll bet. Anyway... Whilst you upload that and decide on the appropriate hashtags and filters, I'll play a wee bit of Alex's tape. In one of the mission proposals for future uh, exploration of Titan, we were putting a, a probe into one of the Titan seas, and uh, I, uh, I fought really hard to keep a really widescreen camera at the right wavelength looking up to the sky uh, to capture that picturesque view of a, a probe bobbing on an alien sea with Saturn filling up the majority of the sky in the frame. Just another day at the office, eh? Right, Colin, are you done playing about on your phone? Aye. Good. Well, first things first. Let's give the listener a nice picture of how it looks where you are right now. Okay, well, I'm standing on the shoreline of Kraken Mary. I think you've mentioned already it's the biggest sea in time. It is with some perspective. But five times the size of Lake Superior in the Grand US of A, or if you want hard numbers, it covers about 154,000 square miles. So, could you actually fit Scotland inside there? Yeah, about five times over. You can nearly fit the whole of Britain in it twice. Right. Well, if you go for a paddle, please don't drop the ship keys in there. We'll be here for eons trying to find them. You're not kidding. Aside from being absolutely massive, they reckon it could be about 300 metres deep in places. Right, some perspective there then. Completely off the top of my head, of course. That's about the size of the Eiffel Tower in Paris. 
I'll take your word for it. So obviously the sea stretches out in front of me as far as I can see, which isn't really that far in this thick, soupy atmosphere, to be honest. I suppose even if it was a clear, earth-like day, you wouldn't be able to see over to the other side. Nah, no way. What's the surface of the sea like? It's kind of hard to describe, but it doesn't really move like water. I guess that's because it isn't though, is it? There's tiny wee waves rippling over the surface at the moment, less than a couple of centimetres high, I'd say. They curl over and fall slower than waves on Earth too, because of the lower gravity, I suppose. Apparently, methane's a colourless substance. Does that mean you can look over Kraken Mary and see right down to the bottom? Not really, no. It might be because of the other stuff that's dissolved in the sea, though. And you know, just like water on Earth reflects the sky, the hydrocarbon seas here do the same, reflecting the orange sky on Titan. Well, not to labour the point, but you definitely wouldn't want to lose your keys in there. Yeah, especially because methane's got lower viscosity than water too. What does that mean? Basically, it's the resistance you'd feel if you tried to move through it. Think the last time you were at the swimming pool, you jumped off the top diving board. You know the water will slow you down and stop you hurting yourself in the bottom of the pool. Aye, that's no good when you do a belly flop though, is it? But anyway, what you're saying is that if I jumped into a pool of liquid methane, I might just plummet right down to the bottom? Probably. But that said, the gravity here's lower, isn't it? So maybe that'd offset it a bit. Well, what are you waiting for? Get the trunks on and find out. Yeah, let me think about that. Oh, I don't believe it. No, don't actually do that. I was only joking. I know, that's not what I meant. It's just that we're way out here in the outer solar system and I'm still getting caught in the rain. It's raining? I just started. Looks really weird. Gonna need a better description than that. Well, you know, it's liquid hydrocarbon rain rather than the water we're used to at home. So the drops look a bit bigger. And I guess, because of the gravity, they fall a lot slower too. It's pretty hypnotic, actually. Sorry I neglected to send you out without an umbrella, but hopefully that suit's still doing its job. The rain must keep all these lakes and seas topped up in any case. Yeah, just like Earth, there's a few rivers feeding them too. They're coming down from the hills and the highlands around here. Well, as we've said already, Titan and Earth do have a lot in common. But there's still one big sea-related mystery we've touched on in previous episodes. The Magic Island. Yeah, I heard about that. Not a clue how it works though. It's alright. This was actually a phenomenon that was originally discovered in the second biggest sea on Titan, Legia Mari. Let's ask our pal Alex. The Magic Island is a 10 kilometer sized area of the sea that used to be perfectly dark that then became very bright. And when we imaged the area again on the shoreline of Legia Mari, it was dark again. Then we imaged another time, it was bright again. And then we imaged again and it was dark again. So we have this 10 kilometer area that gets bright and dark and changes with time. Alex told me that when they were first discovered, he was looking at the image on the computer screen along with the rest of the radar team. They were making a joke about it, saying, oh look, Titan grew as an island. They all thought that because they were looking at the data for the first time, it was just some sort of glitch and that it wasn't actually real. But there was a graduate student by the name of Jason Hofgartner in the room, and he took a real interest in this. Jason decided to ask the rest of the team if he could take a look at it in more detail. This graduate student then spent uh, the next year of his thesis really honing in on looking at exactly what this feature might be and convincing not only his advisor here at Cornell, but also 
the entire radar group at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory that it was not an artifact or an error. It was, in fact, a real signal from the surface of Titan showing a changing environment. So at this point in time, we've only got Cassini's radar images to go on. That means that exactly what the Magic Islands are remains a mixture of speculation and educated guesses. There might be some kind of topography or canyon structure near the shoreline that funnels the winds, causing this area of the sea to become really choppy. Another possibility is that they are actually bubbles that are coming up from the bottom of the sea. Another yet is that they're made of floating debris on the surface of the sea that's been washed in there by one of the connecting rivers. Ultimately though, Alex says that regardless of what they are, this phenomenon is telling us that Titan seas are dynamic and changing, and that Titan itself is a dynamic and complex environment. He was also keen to point out what this discovery said about the Cassini mission as a whole. The fact that the Cassini team, who had been together since, some of them since the 80s in the conception of the instrument, and certainly since launch in the late 90s, uh, were able to, to listen to this very early career young researcher coming in at the end of the mission and uh, adapting to his results and changing the mission profile to go look at that target again because he was able to convince not only the folks at his university but also the folks at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and the greater Cassini team between NASA and ESA that he really discovered something real. And so the Magic Island is, is both a testament to the adaptability of the Cassini mission and how well this large international team works together, as well as the discovery of something of significant scientific importance on the surface of Titan showing a complex dynamic environment. Well done to Big Jason for following that through then. Finding a phantom island in space and convincing NASA that it's real. Not bad bragging rights in the pub, eh? Isn't it? And since the discovery of the original magic island in Legiamari, there's actually been another one spotted in Guess where? Kraken, Mary. Exactly. But, given that the sea's nearly twice the size of the UK, it would be a, a long podcast episode if I sent you out there on a raft to try and find it. <laughs> That's true. Besides, we really need to get back to Sarah and find out how she's getting on at the Doommons Mountains. Alright then, I guess I'll see you back at the third grade. I guess you will. Thanks for the report. No worries. Now, where did I put that space brawly? Yes, so... According to my computer, you've crossed the Aslan Darklands and currently stand at the foothills of the Doommons Mountains. That's right, yes, the uh, Doommons Mountain Range, which is, of course, named after Mount Doom in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And apparently these are some of the biggest mountains on Titan. They are, yes, yes. The highest mountain in the range is about oh, nine-tenths of a mile from base to peak. So although this is dwarfed by the tallest mountains back on Earth, or even the tallest mountains in the USA for that matter, it's still slightly bigger than Ben Nevis. Right, which is the tallest mountain in Scotland. The tallest mountain in the whole of Britain, actually. So this is the biggest one on Titan? Actually, no. No, this this is the second biggest. <laughs> yeah, the biggest is apparently one known as Mithrim Montes, which is also twinned with the Middle-Earthian Mithrim Mountains. No signs of Mr Baggins and his pals out there, though? 
<laughs> no, and a good job too, really. I mean, you know, can't go frolicking around in your bare feet on Titan, eh? <laughs> Imagine the frostbite on your toes, hmm? That would make him the Lord of the Stings. <laughs> Get it? Stings, is it? Uh, yeah, so the question you want to ask me is why are we at the Doommon's mountain range instead of the biggest mountain on Titan? Yeah, I was going to ask that, but I mean Lord of the Stings. And the answer is... Ding, ding, cryovolcanism. Right, I see you're keen to get on with this. So, what can you tell the listener about cryovolcanism then? Well, to be honest, I uh, knew you'd ask Alex Hayes about this one, so as far as I know, it's just some mysterious alien religion or something like that. Well, let's find out if you were right. Cryovolcanism is the icy world's analogue of silicate volcanism that we see here on Earth. And the idea is that instead of hot liquid rock coming out of the ground in volcanic processes, it's liquid water. Since the surface of Titan is predominantly water ice, and underneath that water ice is a liquid water ocean, the analogy of volcanism would be that liquid water making its way to the surface. And cryovolcanism has been long thought to be something that we should expect to see in the outer solar system, but it has yet to be confirmed. But these cryovolcanic structures, if they are in fact cryovolcanoes, are, are very intriguing because they represent a way for Titan's liquid water ocean. Titan has a vast global ocean of liquid salty water underneath its icy crust. And the fundamental question we have regarding Titan's habitability or potential for having environments that can be conducive to life as we know it is understanding how much communication there is between that vast subsurface ocean and all of the organics that are on the surface. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's good. I was only joking. I, I, I had actually looked that up, yeah. But Alex explained it much more eloquently than I could have. <laughs> well, here's another chance to impress the listener. What can you tell us about the mountains other than the fact that they might be cryovolcanic? Ah, yes. Now, there's a key difference between titanium mountains and earth mountains, okay? Because these are actually made up of water ice and organics as opposed to rock. Now, the thing is, though, it's so, 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 so cold that water ice on Titan actually has the strength of rock. Now, now, please don't mention your Lord of the Stings joke again. And there's a, another very interesting feature here too. It's called Sotra Patera. So when you say feature, do you mean another mountain? It's surrounded by mountains, yeah. But uh, Sotra Patera is the deepest known pit on Titan. And it's thought to be a cryovolcanic caldera, which means a volcanic feature formed by the collapse of a volcano into itself. So basically it's a volcano that's disappeared up its own big volcanic hole. Disappeared up its own big cryovolcanic hole, if that is indeed what it is. It's nearly 20 miles wide and over a mile deep. Well, I guess that brings us nicely onto the question of the source of Titan's methane. It does. I think so. Remember Alex said that it's actually destroyed in the upper atmosphere of Titan? 
and uh, in about 10 to 100 million years all of the methane that's in Titan's atmosphere would be destroyed by the high energy particles from the sun, which he says means that there has to be a source. So, Sotropotera, or cryovolcanoes in general, might be responsible for maintaining the methane in the atmosphere on Titan. On top of that, they might be a way for humans to eventually study chemicals and organics that have been thrown up to the surface from far under the ground. And as Alex just told us, far under the ground on Titan means actual liquid water. Titan is actually an organic world of two oceans. We've been talking about the lakes and seas and, and hydrocarbon uh, liquids that are on its surface, but beneath the icy crust is a vast ocean of salty liquid water on Titan. And at the base of that liquid ocean, you might have hydrothermal vent systems, just like you do here on Earth, that would produce heat through interactions with rock, if the water can directly interact with the rock, and have an environment that would be habitable to organisms as we know them here on Earth. And the big question is, can you get the organics, the essential elements for life, down to those environments if they do indeed exist? So, in the immortal words of David Bowie, is there life on Titan? The truth is, we don't know. But there's certainly evidence to suggest that there could be, or at least was at one point, as we've already established, Titan's crust is made of ice. It might also be scattered with frozen pools of water that were created by impacts with melt pools of liquid water in their centres. These pools could remain liquid for hundreds to tens of thousands of years, insulated by Titan's thick atmosphere. Having environments where organics interact with water can produce an environment very similar to the one which saw the emergence of life on Earth. On top of this, Titan's atmosphere is really similar to the atmosphere that was present for the first billion or so years of Earth's existence, when life was emerging. So, from a life as we know it standpoint, Titan has environments on it that can be conducive to supporting life today. It's also a land covered in experiments how far life might have progressed in an environment very similar to early Earth, where life could have been evolving in both places at the same time. And that's before you even get to the question of life as we don't know it, in other words, non-water-based life. Can we really rule out the possibility of methane-based oxygen-free organisms? I mean, sure, it's a long shot, but just as all life on Earth is grown from and around water, why couldn't the same thing happen in a world of liquid methane and ethane? Of course, this is an entirely new rabbit hole though, and one we'll potentially have to revisit another day. I will of course stick some links in the show notes though, if this is something you'd like to find out more about. For now though, I think we've done as much as we can here. Sarah, head on back to the ship. Oh, really? But there's so much more to find out. There is, but we'll need to leave that to the pros. Otherwise, we'll just have to start making stuff up. And if I do that, I'll end up getting us all killed. Oh, all right. So, what's next for Titan? Well, after the end of the Cassini mission, that remains to be seen. But some of the latest reports were that NASA wants to drop an unmanned submarine into one of the hydrocarbon oceans in the year 2040. Oh, 
Like that audio drama you made? Kinda. But that was an actual man submarine. Oh yeah. Did, did the man die? What do you think? Well, I, I guess I better head on back to the tardigrade before you get bored and start plotting a grisly end for me then. <laughs> Aye, I was thinking maybe Cthulhu climbs out of the Sotropatera chasm and starts fighting with Stegosaurus. It's good, but mm, it sounds a bit familiar. Mm, yeah, maybe that would be plagiarism? Well, you say plagiarism, I say fan fiction. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll see you in a bit then. No problem. Oh, and on your way back, have a wee think about any other dangerous and hostile environments in the universe that you'd like us to visit. Oh, alright. Well, you know, my, my local pub's pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, there's always a, a couple of police cars outside there on a Friday night, especially after karaoke. Nah, I was thinking slightly more ambitious, but I'll keep it in mind. Have a safe trip anyway. And try not to drag too much of that electric snow in here when you get back. I'll try my best. Right, I'm off to do the outro credits. Thank you very much for listening to Hostile Worlds, a series created and presented by thepodcasthost.com. Voices heard in this episode were by Sarah Golding, Colin Gray and myself, Matthew McLean. Also heard were contributions from Alex Hayes of Cornell University and the Cassini Mission to Saturn research team. Special thanks go to Hayden Goodfellow at Kilder Observatory and Mike Malaska at NASA JPL. On top of that, a big thanks to Astronomy Magazine, who gave us permission to make Alex's Land Lakes feature available as a free download in the show notes. You can grab that, as ever, at hostileworlds.net. This has been our introductory mini-season on the ocean moon of Titan. We'll be back on board the Tardigrade for another adventure in November, so make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and don't get left behind back on Earth for that. And we'd love to hear from you too. Why not head over to hostileworlds.net where you'll find links on all the ways to get in touch with us. Let us know where you'd like us to investigate in the near future and why. If it intrigues us, we might just fly the tardigrade there next. I'll see you soon. See you next week, folks, as we present our most adult-rated episode of the year. Find out more then. In the meantime, visit the Sonic Society website for news on Nads Room. Until next week, I'm Jack Ward. And I'm David Alt. Good night. Night. Sonic Society is written and produced weekly by Jack J. Ward and David Alt, with original music by Sharon B. at SharonB.com. All features, interviews, and audio drama shorts are owned completely by their originators and provided to the Sonic Society by Creative Commons Licensing. The Society itself originates from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Thanks for listening.
This has been an Electric Vicuna production. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. There! That's how long twenty seconds are. The Center for Disease Control recommends you wash your hands for at least twenty seconds as often as possible. We don't think about it a lot, but more germs are transmitted by the hands than by any other source. So keep them clean. Soap and water for 20 seconds, and you'll help prevent the spread of COVID-19. And maybe some other nasty stuff as well. This was a public service announcement from the Mutual Audio Network.